0: writers and artists come into the university and the university i can remember them saying we want you to be crazy you know but can you give grades we really need grades
1: michael martone taught creative writing for 40 years at first he tried to teach his students to write better stories By the time he retired in 2020, he'd spent decades challenging his students to write badly. This week on Interstates, Michael Martone and I talk about how the rise of MFA programs in creative writing shaped American fiction, why it's helpful for writing classrooms to avoid praise and blame, and grades, too, and what it means to be an Indiana writer. That's all coming up right after this. Wikipedia lists 30 published works for Michael Martone, although we should add one more because that list only goes up to Plain Air, forthcoming this fall. But that number is fuzzy for other reasons. We tend to think of writers' works, their oeuvres, as books of their own original writing. There's plenty of that on Martone's list. But there are also anthologies, collaboratively written works, and more. Writing for Martone is about a lot more than publishing capital L Literature. It's also about exploring how we frame the frame itself to engage a Martonian phrase. He's interested in what makes us consider a piece of writing literary or not, fiction or not, real or not. A couple examples. One book is called Michael Martone by Michael Martone. It's a collection of contributors notes, also known as author bios, that he published in literary magazines, even if he hadn't published anything else in that magazine. They're little stories, mixtures of fiction and fact. There's also the Blue Guide to Indiana. It's a travel guide to Indiana. He published some of the descriptions in local newspapers. Got a few people excited to go get their hair done at the convent in Jasper called Our Lady of the Big Hair and Feet. You can also get information there about the Tomb of Orville Redenbacher and the Trans-Indiana Mayonnaise Pipeline. I'm not sure they exist. A couple more things you should know about Martone. He might be the writer who's written the most about his birth state of Indiana, at least since James Whitcomb Riley and Gene Stratton Porter. He was born in Fort Wayne and, as the contributor's note says, went to the public school there. Alongside all this writing, he's been teaching a few generations of writers in graduate writing programs. The last one he taught in was at the University of Alabama, which he retired from in 2020, and where, it's time I admitted, I was a student of his in the late 20-teens. He was a formative teacher for me. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. He's fairly well-known in the writing world, and, as far as I can tell, unfairly unknown outside of it. He's been a beloved teacher to 40 years of writing students. He came to Bloomington recently for the Grand Falloon Literary Festival, where a few of his works had been adapted for the stage. We talked about how the rise of creative writing programs shaped the style of American literary fiction, about how Maria Montessori shaped his graduate classrooms, and what it means to be an Indiana writer. We started with the plays. He was happy with how the productions turned out, but he said when he'd first had his work adapted for the stage, it made him a little nervous. He's a fiction writer, yes, but he doesn't really write stories. He's a lyrical writer. And that doesn't lend itself so well to drama, rising and falling action, conflict, resolution. He knew early on that he wasn't writing that kind of fiction.
0: I went to Johns Hopkins. My teacher there was John Barth. And in one conference after I would written one of these uh, collage pieces made up of little sort of voices uh, uh, from all over, uh, he said, you know, Michael, and he was speaking very technically, you don't write stories. And I said, I know that, Jack. He said, but that's okay. What, what we'll call them is not stories, but fictions.
1: You write short fictions, not short stories. In your desire to, to be a writer, was that ever a dilemma for you, um, especially sort of like trying to figure out, I'm, I'm writing fiction, but I'm not really writing stories? Was there tension for you in that, or or was that just something you were always like, this is what I'm doing, and I'm just going to do it? Well,
0: I think that's—I mean, you know this, too. You sort of find what it is you want to do, what's driving you. But the tension uh, came in the sort of historical moment that I became a writer who was going to go out in the world, and that was in 1979, 1980. I was really on the cusp of a cultural transition. That the writers, American writers before me in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 60s, tended to be writers who were doing the kinds of things that I ended up doing. So those are writers, say, like Donald Barlamay, Robert Coover. They were later then called postmodernist, but they were interested in creating fictions. I mean, it all goes back to Borges. There are no characters in Borges. There's no learning, there's no rising action, you know, know, the sort of classic thing. Barlaumet said that the reason that they were writing that way had to do with um, the change of technology. And Barlaumet said, let's look at painters. Painters in the 19th century, if you could paint a horse on a two-dimensional space, and it looked like a horse You were a great painter. And uh, then uh, Eastman Kodak comes out with the Brownie camera and any idiot can make a picture of a horse. And so the painters said, oh, what we're going to do now is only what paint can do. And uh, so abstract expressionism, cubism, I mean, all of the things that could not be done by the photograph. And Barlamay said in the 19th century, if you were Dickens – and you were doing a realistic depiction and telling a story, who were your competitors? Well, no one. Maybe the newspaper, but um, Dickens was writing for the newspaper. And so the 20th century comes, and the first narrative delivery device that gets invented is the movies. And then radio, and then television, and then cable, and all of these narrative delivery devices compete with a writer thinking of, well, I am a— narrative writer. So in the 60s and the 70s, the writers began thinking, what can I do that all these other things can't do? What can print do? What can uh, writing do that movies can't do? And so you look at the stories of Donald Barla or you look at my stories. The only way this works is if you read it. It is about that. And it's, so it's it was interesting that when I started teaching then, there was a cultural revolution of writers that moved away from the experiments of Barthelme and Barth with writing as writing into, oh, we're going to go back to writing realistic narrative in the 19th century. And Chekhov became sort of the model. And so... The question about tension was I now was going out into the world into the explosion of creative writing classes where most people were now using, say, John Gardner's book on how to write and championing the notion of realistic narrative and actually sort of poo-pooing and denying the kind of writing that Barlamay does, or like I do, is only sort of literary games playing, and it's too cerebral. There's no heart to it. And so there was a tension culturally that really what you should be writing are these stories. But I, you know, was still in the tradition of the kind of lyric fiction-making as opposed to narrative storytelling. In the larger culture... I don't think people make a distinction. Oh, he's a short story writer. He's a, you know. And it's always been there in writing, the sort of self-conscious textual interest writing as opposed to um, this other writing, which its main thing, its main strategy is to be transparent. Orwell talks about it. Other people talk about it, that you want your reader – to go into a kind of waking dream. And so if you're that kind of writer, anything written that takes the reader out of that position of being in a dream and I'm there and I can see it, you want to get rid of it. But in this other type of writing, my type of writing, I am constantly telling the reader that the reader is reading. So there's a tension culturally about that. And I think... In 1980, there was a, this change. And one of the things that changed is the explosion of creative writing after 1980. All of a sudden now, you had to have teachers who could teach you how to write. And I don't know if you know a bartholomew story or a Barth story or a Robert Coover story, but those are conceptual stories or a Borges story. That can be taught, but I can teach you the conventions because they're stable of how to do a narrative realistic story with a ground situation, an inciting incident, rising action, climax, and I can teach you don't use exclamation points, you don't call attention to this printed thing. And so with all of the teachers now teaching how to write, we're going to go back to the time... Before television, before movies, before the Internet, we're going to go back and teach you the 19th century storytelling. Because that's what's teachable. That's what's teachable because its conventions and its strategies of how to put together a thing like that are stable. Right. And so I think a lot of people said, yeah, you know, and a lot of administrators, a lot of colleges said, that's great. You know, you now have a subject matter. But you could have conceived of the uh, – I, I conceived of the classroom differently. That is, here it is. Here's a space. You figure out what you want to do, and I'll help you go wherever you want to go, as opposed to having very strict rules about composition that you followed.
1: And rules that are assumptions, actually, often yeah. unspoken.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, all those rules filter down into, say – fresh or uh, freshman composition in high school things you know when it mm-hmm. comes to things like use ver you know strong verbs and, and nouns don't use adverbs or adjectives those kinds of rules were already in the culture because again they're teachable and so when when you adapt those composition rules up to, um, you know, now the creative writers who were coming into the university, you know, made for um, a sort of heady thing. And that really held sway from 1980 to, oh, I don't know, like uh, early 90s, you know, 15 years. Most creative writing programs privileged narrative realism. And most of the literary fiction that was being published was narrative realism. But two things happened in the 90s or so. One was the writer Kelly Link. Kelly Link was not in the university, and she began—and there were other people, too, around her at that time— she began writing non-realistic storytelling, non-realistic narrative, that is, fairy tales, genre. All of a sudden, that was happening— And on the other side, in my side, which was non-narrative realism, a magazine began called McSweeney's. And McSweeney's also was outside of the university. And both of those things became incredibly popular and gave the culture an alternative to what one should aspire to. Hmm. Plus... It was addressing students that now were coming out of homes that had always had the computer.
1: And so have you—part of what you're saying is that there have been stylistic changes as a result.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to say, when was the time in our literary history that writers stopped using a pen and started using the typewriter? Mark Twain is is a kind of point there— And, you know, he was working in a time where you were being paid by the number of words. And so the books were fat and and all of that. And famously, Hemingway, you know, Hemingway's style supposedly was derived from another technology. Hemingway was in Europe using the telegraph to send stories back. And you wanted to use the fewest words in order to save money. So the technological connection of how writing is written actually influences the style. It isn't so much that Hemingway said, well, I'm going to do all this and all these brief things. He was forced to do that and create a style out of the technological way he was writing. Another good example, I think, is uh, Gravity's Rainbow. He wrote that on a typewriter. I was writing on a typewriter. But by the time he got to Mason Dixon— you know, I was amazed by Gravity Serena. How in the world in all this knowledge, this encyclopedic knowledge, how did he do this? And uh, then when he got to Mason Dixon, I was on a computer. He was on a computer. And like, oh, I want to know whether or not uh, tinsel is in the forest. I just, you know, open a tab and it transformed the writing even of a writer like Thomas Pynchon.
1: I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Infinite Jest. I got kind of obsessed with David Foster Wallace for a while. And one of the reasons that I was so interested in him at the time was that I had also been reading some of these writers that you're talking about as well, um, Pynchon especially, yeah. and DeLillo. And yep. I had felt like they were so, it felt so heady and intellectual, kind of like the, these games that you were talking about yeah. earlier on. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I at least found in David Foster Wallace was also this the heart piece. Right. You know, the desire to to work through feelings and to think about, like, human experience in a way that's not just, like, an interest in, in the text. Right. But, and trying to bring those two things. I kind of argued in my thesis that he yeah. was doing yeah. an interesting job of bringing those two yeah. things together. So I'm curious how you also, with you, all your interest in textuality. You know, I feel like you're also interested in feeling as well. Oh, definitely. Totally.
0: And that, for me, was the interesting question.
1: If the attack is
0: that this is cold, textual, and uh, heartless, and too brainy. In fact, Raymond Carver, in the one essay he wrote about uh, writing fiction, he said, No more tricks. No more tricks. And, of course, he's got the biggest trick of all. So... Barth had an an interesting response as far as if the attack is going to be that you are uh, non emotional, that you're too brainy, too intellectual, too trickery. He said, OK, wait a minute. He said, One of the most emotional, realistic depictions in all of literature is when Priam in the uh, Iliad goes to Achilles, and he even did it in the movie with Brad Pitt, goes to Achilles on his knees, and begs Achilles for the body of Hector, his son, back. Everyone agreed. Incredibly emotional. It's done realistically. You forget that you're there. You're in the dream. He's very emotional. He said, but there's another thing that we can think about. In the Aeneid, Aeneas, the other son of Priam, has escaped Troy, and they're going to eventually go to Rome, but they end up in Carthage. And uh, at Carthage, um, he leaves Priam, you know, instead of carrying him on his back, he leaves Priam back on the shore. And uh, he goes inland, and they're building a temple. And in the pediment of the temple, they're putting up the statues. And the scene they're using is Priam on his knees begging from Achilles the body of Hector, back from being dragged around the city, and Aeneas falls on his knees. Now, Barr said that's not only emotional scene, but it's a more emotional scene because it's self-consciously about literature. And so he would argue that you're bringing various kinds of synthetic emotions or creating various kinds of synthetic emotions, not only the actual emotion of Priam begging his, uh, Hector's body back, but the reading of that scene. So that was his argument for this. And I think that was what David was doing and what I was trying to do, is in some ways admitting that the emotion of writing and the emotion of reading is a valid emotion as opposed to just the actual emotion of, say, a fistfight or of an argument. You know, in recreating uh, a real sort of conflict and emotion creates a synthetic reaction that if you double it or triple it, it actually is a different kind of emotion that you can get to the heart through the head, not just through the gut. But again, narrative realism and that style of writing emphasizes sensory detail. Try to get the senses involved. And we don't trust the brain, don't tell, show. But the real trick, I think, and I think that's what David was doing, and what I was trying to do, is to tell and show.
1: If you're just tuning in, you're probably listening to the radio, not the podcast. This is Interstates from WFIU, and we're talking with writer Michael Martone. Martone lives in Alabama, but he's from Fort Wayne, and the bulk of his fiction is based in Indiana. It's time for a break. When we come back, we talk about how his approach to teaching changed over his 40-year career. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're talking this week with Michael Martone. He's a Hoosier, a writer. In 2020, he retired from a long teaching career that included me as his student. Let's get back to it. So thinking about teaching, you've been teaching for, you know, 40 years, 40 years. I I imagine you got clearer about what you were trying to do as a teacher over the years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. uh, I think there are a couple of turning points. But one thing I like to say, I may might have said that to you uh, before when you were a student is that Hopkins was a one-year program. I don't know how I wrote a book in nine months. And of course, it wasn't even in nine months because we were still typing at the time. So it really had to be done in six months so it could be typed perfectly for the thesis thing. And then I was hired as an instructor at Hopkins for one year. And then, because it was all new and this expansion was happening, I got hired at Iowa State University. So in 1980, so I was 25. But I got hired, and this is hilarious now because usually now it takes two books to even be considered. I got hired on uh, having published two stories. I know. I know. I mean uh, – well, I mean, it, you know, I, in a lot of ways, I feel like I was at the gateway of, of this cultural phenomena, the MFA program, but also sort of at its ending point too. Anyway – uh, so I was at I always stayed, and I was beginning to teach my workshops, and I honestly remember doing this, that a person came in, a student came in with a story, know, in, in a workshop, it is that way. You, you don't say, you know, do this, this, and this, and write a story. You say, write your story, bring it in, and we'll look at it. So the kid brought in a story that had to do with Gundam Wing. Do you know Gundam Wing? It's, no. it's Japanese anime, mechanical okay. suits that type of thing. So it was a fan fiction. Yeah. This is in 1980. And I remember myself saying this because this is what I thought I had to do. And that was, this is really interesting, Billy. Have you read Chekhov, though? And so even though the advertised position of creative writing was, we're creative. (laughs) Anything can be art. I already was not just... In a position of thinking, I knew more than the writer, uh, you know, the student writer, uh, but I had things that I thought it was really important he should know and should have read. And I think I was young and I, I and and that was what was around. It was only later. And I think it had a lot to do with the election of George Bush. And the return in education generally to an idea of assessment and judgment and standards that got me thinking about being a teacher that is what I call a fiduciary. Um, you know fiduciary, right?
1: Reminds me. Well,
0: I mean, usually people think of fiduciary when it comes to economic stuff, banks or fiduciaries. Right,
1: like a trust. Yeah,
0: and that's what it means. It's a trust. You put your money in the bank and you trust them to hold that money safely until you identify yourself and you give it back and maybe with some interest. Well, the university is a fiduciary. It holds knowledge that I don't know. I don't know calculus. I got to go to the fiduciary. And this is why college education sort of makes sense, right? You go to the fiduciary, you sit in a lecture hall. The fiduciary, the person who has the knowledge, lectures and transfers that knowledge to me, and that knowledge transfer can be examined. How well that was transferred, and you can make a grade on that. That makes sense. Now. now I have the degree, you know, or I have the, uh, I have the knowledge transferred to me, and what the university can do is raise you by degree. That's what. It, now you're raised by a degree to a fiduciary. Okay, so that's ancient, and that makes sense. It makes sense in biology. I, I don't. I don't, you know, I don't know that stuff. Math. I almost failed finite math at IU three times. <laughs> but then, for some crazy cultural reason, writers and artists come into the university, and the university. I can remember them saying, "We want you to be crazy, you know." But can you give grades? We really need grades. There is just an institutional, and it's ancient and it's important. Disciplines, hierarchies, all of that operates in in the institution and now all of a sudden you're an artist in the institution. And what I came to realize is I know nothing that is going to help a writer become the writer they want to be. There's nothing I know that I can give you or that I gave you that will make you the writer that you are. What I needed to do was provide a kind of space, a protected space, for you to do that and for me to be available to you in any way I could. So with the onset of the return of education back to standards and, you know, all of that during the Bush administration – What I became really interested in uh, was a kind of alternative, and not just in university, but an alternative of education that comes out of Montessori. And the whole idea of the Montessori classroom, The huge difference, right? In a fiduciary model, the professor stands at the front of the class, and the desks are like this. In the Montessori model, the classroom is arranged with various areas of stuff a play. And Montessori famously said, a child's play is his work. And uh, so over here is a kitchen. Here's a library. There's a sandbox with manipulatives. Here's a dress-up place. And I did this with my undergraduate students. A Montessori teacher will meet the child at the door and say, Bobby, what would you like to do today? And Bobby said, well, I, I think I'll be in the kitchen today. Oh, great. I got some new grapefruit. You know, you go in there. The assistant will help you, you know, cut it open. We'll, we'll talk about it later, you know, and you can then maybe introduce math concepts, you know, whatever. But the whole thing is that the child leads the exploration and the teacher helps in that exploration. A lot of universities said, oh, yes, we're student-driven, but not really. So it was at that time that I began thinking about that and especially the interesting phenomena that I saw in those early years of students who have gone out of their way to apply to schools and they've been writing their entire lives and they think they're going to find the community and then they they get to the university and they can't write. You know, I told you it took me just a uh, six months to write a book, but I had a four-year program, and I had students who took all four years and maybe couldn't even do their thesis yet. They were completely frozen, and they were frozen by this notion that there was a right way of doing a story and a wrong way. And now that they were in, even though it didn't seem to be, they just were so conscious of of it being a competition and being that we were no longer a creative writing class, but a critical writing class. I mean, uh, that's why I said, what is it that it's causing my writers not to write? And one thing I did is I stopped calling them students and they were writers. What is causing these writers not who love to write, but now they don't love love to write. Um, And, uh, at the time, too, there was a thing called the um, Pizza Hut reading program.
1: <laughs> yes. Were you in that Pizza Hut reading room? No, but I know the reference because, uh, because of Alfie Cohen. Who
0: Alfie Cohen! I was reading Alfie Cohen. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, that anic- anecdote actually happened to my son, too, who really? knew how to read. He loved to read. He got into second grade. We're going to put him in the Pizza And we said, no, we don't want him in that. He said, oh, no, he'll love it, you
1: know, he'll read far more, you know, and uh, no. And and just so people know, who are, if you're not familiar with the Pizza Hut program, yeah. it's a situation where kids are supposedly motivated to read by getting pizza at the end of having read a certain number of books or pages yeah, or whatever, yeah. right?
0: Yeah, and, and then you got a point, and then the point led to pizzas. Right. And, you know, the kid will love the pizza. And we said, no, that's not going to happen. And so Cohn says, and it actually happened to our kid, is that all of a sudden reading became very difficult because (laughs) adults had told him that what you should aspire to is the pizza Mm -hmm. as opposed to the book, which earlier had been the pizza. He read the book because it was the reward. And so the, the pedestrian notion of education of sticks and carrots to get a kid to do what you want is not looking at the kid, saying, what is the kid wanting to do and helping him
1: to do that? And uh, uh, and I think so. also so many people who end up in MFA programs, I would think, um, are probably people who were like me, who were very good in school yes. and very good at getting good grades yes. and doing the things that the teachers wanted us to do. Yes. And so we came with this sense that, oh, now I'm going to learn to be a writer and yeah. I'm going to be taught the skills that it takes yeah. to be a writer. Yeah. I mean I you know I was frustrated yeah at times yeah. as a student yeah in the in your program. yeah No no exactly. I mean
0: it, but it's the same thing as the pizza that all of a sudden these writers who had written journals and stories and all of that are now in a situation where it's like well what I should really on the basic level, desire is an A. What I should really desire is publication. What I should really desire is publication in, you know, the, not only publication, but publication in this specific magazine as opposed to this magazine.
1: Yeah. And, and one way to know that I'm on the way there is to get the teacher of the workshop, the credentialed teacher yes, of the workshop, right. to say, you your story is doing well. Your story is good. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so what happens is people, people don't write because it's all either – It has to be great or it's nothing. And so at the same time I was reading Cohen and Montessori, I was also interested in William Stafford and Stafford's ideas of the workshop. I had already moved into a descriptive workshop where I didn't do, you know, this is good, this is bad. And also the writings of Carol Bly and examining the idea of the, the gag rule. So the workshop, it had evolved to the point, as I inherited it, to wanting to be a simulation of an editorial board. And the writer, in submitting the work, has now submitted to this magazine editorial board. And so the reason that then the writer in the workshop is told To be quiet as people talk about the writing so as not to enter in with if somebody said, well, you know, you didn't do this here. Then the writer has to sit quietly to hear that criticism and can't say, well, yeah, I mean, I I was going to do that. I mean, you know, you're supposed to say, no, we're not going to have arguments about what your intent was and all of that. And so uh, I was interested in in the sort of frame of what the workshop was. And what the workshop had evolved to was this editorial board. But actually, the good model for the workshop was what those writing students did after a <laughs> workshop. And that is they all got up, they went to a bar or they went to uh, each other's houses and they sat around and they talked about their writing. And the writer they were talking about wasn't staying quiet. The writer would say, there's this point where I'm trying to get this person from this room into this other room, and I did this, but what do you think I should do to do that? And then, you know, you're friends, you're in the community. You say, well, you know, have you thought about that? You could actually break point of view. there. I mean, that is what a workshop should be. And uh, the way it was set up, it wasn't set up that way. It was set up as a transaction which also damaged the people who were not the writers. They were put into the role not as writers. They were put into the role as critics and editors. And so the hypoxic workshop came about when I realized that if you have a class of 12, the tradition would be we're going to break into four groups of three. And every fourth week, you will have a story up. But the other weeks, you operate as a critic. So here you have a creative writing workshop in which most of the time of the the people who are in the class um, are criticizing. They're critics. They're not operating as writers. Um, And so, you know, I had a whole department filled with critics. Why was I training these writers to be critics? That's what that class was all about. So that was the sort of end result of a lot of things. I get back to Stafford. Stafford also said, no praise, no blame. That is, everybody looked to the head of the table, to, to me, as the final critic. And Stafford was very good, and I tried very hard to do this. Not to say, because writers in a workshop will say, well, we could be really hard on each other, but we have to say a good thing, too, about this piece. But Stafford points out, no praise, no blame. And so my response was always, you're doing this, you're doing that. This is very, you know, this is interesting. This is uh, here, I'm not clear here. Well, you know, what's going on there? Asking a writer who is not gagged, to, you know, take me through the story, and this is what I'm responding to, and this isn't what I'm responding to, but not saying this is good or this is bad, because, as he points out, it doesn't matter if I told you, as a, as a writer, you know, that you're great, you're terrific, or if I say to you, you're bad, um, you know, this is really awful, this is a piece of crap, and if you're whining about it, you know, buck up, fella, it doesn't matter, Because all the student will hear is, I am your teacher, and I have the power to say this or that. It's only something that I am using to actually show the distinction between me, the teacher, you, the student. And that's another reason I stopped calling my students students, because they were not Mm -hmm. students.
1: They were writers. It's time for a break. You're listening to Interstates. We're talking with writer and teacher Michael Martone about... Well, writing and teaching. When we come back, we'll talk about what it means to be an Indiana writer. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're talking this week with writer Michael Martone. He retired in 2020 from teaching in the Graduate Creative Writing Program at the University of Alabama. Marton was influenced early on by Lewis Hyde's book, The Gift, which is about how art needs to be shared freely, not commodified, not graded.
0: And that's what's so interesting about the cultural history of creative writing in the university. My view of creative writing and in, in creating this or making art is that it is horizontal. It spreads, but the university is just existentially involved in a vertical structure of hierarchies in my undergraduate class they would walk in the door or you know i would be at the door welcoming them to the classroom on the first day and i'd say you know first thing i'd say to them is you all get a's there's nothing you can do in this class it's an elective class you've elected to come here to this writing class Um, you all get a's there's nothing you can do that will make me change that grade you can sleep through the class you can you know not show up and uh, i said so this maybe is a very easy class but here's the hard part of it i said really perhaps the only thing you've learned in the 12 years of your school experience you've been sitting in the classroom forever is to come into a classroom and as quickly as possible figure out what i want So you can get what you want, which is the A. And the hard part of this class is I don't want anything. No skin off my nose. I mean, I still get paid. I might get a little buzz from the dean that you're giving too many A's out, but I don't care because I'm not interested in educating you that way. And, you know, so I don't care, but I don't care carefully. And, uh, you know, what was really amazing is that I would get two or three people drop the class because they did not know what they wanted. They had been so trained, of course, to want the A. But they were also existentially sort of faced with their own, what do
1: I want? So... In the MFA program, at the beginning of the year, we would have this uh, big gathering where everyone who was in the program would gather in the one room upstairs. And, you know, in, um, I'm forgetting the name of the building. Uh, well, it used to be called Morgan,
0: but it has been renamed the English building. The English building, yes. <laughs> but I like to call it the Mildew Hall because it also was pretty mildewy. So.
1: <laughs> All right. So the, that big room on the third floor of yeah. Mildew Hall. 301, yeah. 301. We would all be in there. And I remember one year, someone gave the prompt, maybe you, for all of us to go around and say something we liked. Yeah. And it got to you. Yeah. got to you and you said, uh, and your name, I'm Michael Martona. I like liking things. <laughs> and uh, maybe you listed trains and some other things yeah, too. Yeah. But I just wonder if that liking of liking things has been a part of your approach to writing and art and thinking about your relationship to making things and teaching. teaching. No, I, I, I think that's... I think it has in
0: that going back to what we were talking about with workshops and and teachers and, and you know, being—actually training critics, I don't know if the, the year you were there, we brought in Janet Burroway. Janet Burroway has a famous series of uh, how to write textbooks. And she was, you know, giving a, a, a lecture about that. And— And one thing she said was, you know, when I enter a text, I begin, you know, immediately to say whether this is good or bad. I begin to make judgments about it. And she was making that as a kind of general, yeah, everybody's agreeing with that sort of thing. And in the question and answer thing said, you know, I said to her, Janet, you know, I I just beg to differ. I don't want to enter when I pick up a text, something that I'm reading. I don't pick it up to, to make a decision about its quality. Uh, I pick it up because I'm curious. Now, I may sort of lose interest, but, but I'm reading a text in a curious way. And I think it had to be, and maybe that's, you know, why is it that I talk so much about trains or I talk so much about peonies that I love or, you know, that I do that? I think— If I am a teacher in me, one of the things that I wanted to teach you was to see the world in a curious way, you know, as opposed to a critical way. And that is incredibly difficult when you are embedded in a huge, ancient, critical institution. It wants to do that. It wants to say, this is no good, this is good, this is right, that is wrong. And you're trying to teach young artists how
1: to be curious
0: in the context of incredible, critical
1: thinking. Okay, I need to jump in here and say something to you, listener, rather than Michael Martone. There was more to our conversation. From the critical apparatus of the university, that brought on a discussion of the challenges MFA programs are facing now and why Martone thinks they may be on their last legs. Interesting stuff. But... As you know, Interstates is partly about the Midwest and what it means to live here and write and make art here. I've already said that Martone is very interested in place, Indiana in particular. So I asked him why place has been such a focus for him. It's
0: interesting, having lived in Tuscaloosa for 26 years, um, but still my writing is mainly about Indiana you know, if I'm in Indiana as I am now, and even in your introduction, you sort of you were hedging that way. That is, if I say if somebody on the street on Kirkwood says, "Well, what do you do?" I say, "Oh, I'm, I write." And what do you write about? And um, I say, "Well, I write about Indiana." Usually, the response will be, "Well, why?" <laughs> you know, there's nothing here. I mean, how interesting is that? But the notion of what an Indiana writer is is interesting because my undergraduate students in the South, you know, if somebody says, I'm going to write about Alabama, everybody says, well, what took you so long? Of course you'd write about Alabama. I mean, we're so interesting. And so what was interesting to me being a Midwestern writer and committing myself to writing about the Midwest and Indiana is that particular notion that our stories, our culture, isn't worthy of artistic production. I mean, that choice of writing about Indiana actually probably hurt me when it came to, say, reviews by The New Yorker, you know, I mean, because regionalism or writing about a particular region without also making gestures to a sort of larger modernist idea of a kind of world literature maybe if i made certain other decisions i'd I'd be more better known as you were saying that i'm known in the writing world but not maybe out of it Um, or if i wrote realistic narrative and that could be made (laughs) into a movie all right Um, but the funny thing is uh, i've been on panels with other indiana writers and they complain well we don't get reviewed you know by the new york times or all that. And I said, I don't care if the New York Times reviews me or not. I really want the Indianapolis Star to review me. Not only that, I want people in Indianapolis to read me. But the interesting thing is, of course, probably people who've read me are more outside of the state of Indiana than in, in the state of Indiana. So I think it's it's disingenuous to sort of say, oh, you know, the the larger culture in the world doesn't care about about uh, us Indiana writers, I'm, I'm fine with that. I think it's sad that Indiana writers don't care about – or Indiana readers don't care about Indiana writers, that, that we have to work hard to, to even do that or we wait until someone like Vonnegut is recognized by the cultural centers of the world to say, oh, now he's worth reading. But that we have our own particular stories to tell each other. South doesn't have that problem. No, the South, the South, they don't care. They, you know, they, they are all into their culture.
1: It's great to hear you talk about that. Actually, I'm glad that glad we got there because I've been thinking about that with this show too. Yeah, of wanting to uh, do a show that really is. About Indiana and the Midwest mm-hmm. and not always talking about Indiana and the Midwest explicitly, but that is that lives here and mm-hmm. is based here and is that doesn't necessarily need to mm-hmm. speak more broadly or speak yeah. to you know I mean about the place.
0: Yeah no uh, um, you know that's what I that, that's the, the interesting puzzle to me my entire writing life. I guess this also goes back to John Barth as well, who, who is a Maryland writer, and he uses Maryland a lot. I and mean, what I learned from him a lot was about writing about place, though you know a lot of people know him more for his experimentations and, and uh, his other things. But he is a regional writer. But it was interesting that I was there at the same time that Minchner was there doing his book Chesapeake. And Barth was writing about Maryland. And so it was very instructive because Minchner would use things like, you know, crab cakes and duck decoys and, you know, the chess, all the sort of received notions of what a place is. Mm. And Barth was very good at finding its real uniqueness, not the things that were in the airport souvenir shop. And so it's always interesting to me— to try to find in Indiana what I think is the real, or the Midwest, what are sort of the real, sort of unspoken, what, invisible things, as opposed to this saying, well, you know, here they are sitting at the kitchen table eating sugar cream pie and watching a basketball game and, you know, there's corn out in the field. Those things, I think, in media, of course, it's very important to make those kinds of references to help us say, "Oh yeah, I'm not in Kansas anymore. Kansas is where the wheat is." And yeah, you know. but if you're going to really write about a place, what is it that that has really shaped something that is so Indiana that it it isn't even recognizable? That it's the water of Indiana, and you're <laughs> the fish in it, right? You know, and how is it that you can get to that? I mean, like. The, the great migration of, of 1920 and, and earlier that brought African-American people up from the south through Indiana is there, but it's not so much in the sugar cream pie and the, the usual thinking of Indiana. When we talk about crossroads, but we don't really examine that, which I think is uniquely Indiana, this cross mixture of things. Instead, we, again, sort of want to hold into a kind of early 1900 time that Indiana, that never
1: was, but we want to believe. Somehow. Right. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm just thinking of a million more questions, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> but this is great. Well, maybe we do it again sometime. Right. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Michael, well, thank you. Yeah. That was writer Michael Martone in Bloomington, Indiana for the Grand Falloon Festival in early June. Martone's latest book is Plain Air, Sketches from Winesburg, Indiana, coming out in September from Baobab Press. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up, but first the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Pascash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from Amy and Justin and the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time for some found sounds. That was part of a very long train crossing a road in Auburn, Indiana, just north of Fort Wayne. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.